Mark chapter 12, verse number 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the hearts and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Once again, as we gather in obedience to to Scripture and and worship you in song and fellowship one with another, uh, partake of the ordinances, Lord, we've gathered around the Lord's table today. All these things we've done, Lord, in obedience to you, and and now we open the word uh, also in obedience to you. And So I pray today that you guide, you direct, you help. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Help me to be clear and accurate and practical. Help me to say what I ought to and be absolutely silent where I ought to be. Help me, Lord, to be uh, able to expound this rightly. And I pray for all of us, Father, that we'd have, uh, we'd have the Holy Spirit's help in, in hearing and listening today. That, Lord, we'd, uh, we'd just see exactly how this applies to us and apply it. I pray no one would leave this place today lost. I pray the gospel would be clear. I pray no Christian would leave this place backslidden or business they need to do with you. I just pray, Lord, as we work through this passage and think about these things, you'll speak to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three questions were asked here of Jesus. Three. 
In addition to here in Mark, the first two also appear in Matthew and in Luke. That last question, the question about the greatest commandment, uh, is not told by Luke. Only Matthew uh, mentions that in addition to Mark. Three questions. And three groups of people or individuals posed the questions. Basically the same cast of characters that we saw the last time we were in Mark. We've had a little break here from Mark, but uh, when we were before uh, looking at Mark, we saw that he spoke a parable of the wicked husbandman in the first 12 verses of chapter 12, and it was to this same group of people. You can notice the connection uh, to that previous parable. Jesus had warned the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in that parable, those first 12 verses, at the end of which they had gone their way, apparently silenced, but really not silenced, because all they did was, rather than heed the warning of the parable, they went off somewhere and regrouped and came up with another strategy and came back at him a second time with renewed enthusiasm. All three questions were asked out of one particular initial desire, and that was to trap Jesus Christ, to, uh, uh, to trick him into saying something that could be misconstrued or used against him. That word trap that is used there uh, is only used here. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It was used to, uh, to talk about catching an animal in the wild. It's, it's ensnared is basically what you would think of. Uh, catching someone uh, in a trap. Three questions, all the same purpose. All, th- all three questions provided Jesus the opportunity to speak some wonderfully important truths. His answer to the first question, shall we pay tribute to Caesar or not? His answer to that question provided some good clarification for us on how we ought to respond to government, doesn't it? Our responsibilities to and our relationship to government as well as how we balance that against our responsibilities to and relationship to God. His answer to the second question dealt with the reality of the resurrection and the glorious future that awaits, and, and, and answered some other questions as well that we'll see as we, as we think about that. And his answer to the third question distilled down all the responsibilities of the believer, and this, this was just discussed in Sunday school this morning in Mark's class, into two things, love God and love people. Those two things. Three questions. And, and, and I think this morning, and this is really the direction I want to go, I think this morning that these three questions also uh, give us a glimpse into the motivations of the questioners. Why did they ask that which they asked? All three were at least initially driven by evil motives. All three of them were. Their motives are instructive to us. We can learn something from them. We'll get down to the last one and we'll see that his was not entirely evil. And uh, he kind of changed around, but... So let's consider the three groups, the three questions, and the three different motivations that inspired those questions. The first group was the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians. And they sought only to discredit Jesus. That was their motivation. Now, these guys didn't like each other much. The Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, they were like oil and oil and what is it, oil and water, oil and vinegar, something like that. They were, they were, they were, they, they didn't like each other. Matter of fact, they hated each other. The Romans hated, or the Pharisees hated Roman rule, while the Herodians embraced it and supported it. Uh, the Pharisees were driven by religious zeal, while the Herodians by political zeal. They normally would have had nothing to do with each other. But in this case, they were driven by a common cause. They hated Jesus more than they hated each other. And so they, were, they got together to try to get him out of the picture. So they posed a question. And they posed a question that they thought would put him in a dilemma. It would put him in a dilemma that he couldn't answer without getting in trouble with one side or the other. He would either get in, tri- in trouble with the religious Jews or with the political, uh, the politics of Rome. One of those two things. 
That question is in verse number 14. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men. But teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Before considering the question, we have to notice their ridiculous hypocrisy. Uh, unbelievable. Teacher, we know you are true. They said that, but they didn't really believe it. We know that you uh, don't regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. They said that, but they rejected every word that he spoke. And so they didn't really believe it. We cannot help but see their hypocrisy. Neither could Jesus, as we see in verse number 15. He even called them hypocrites. Their motivation was not to know truth and apply it to their lives. Their motivation was to discredit Jesus Christ. And as we look at Jesus' answer, it's, it's frankly astounding. Matter of fact, I read something, and I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but I read something that said this was one of the, one of the most well-known and uh, brilliant legal arguments that has ever been posed. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I would believe it. It was astounding, and they marveled at him. He completely, he thoroughly answered their question. His answer would satisfy both the Jews and the Romans. His answer would not offend either group. It would not offend anybody. Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, Jesus taught some things here. He taught, for example, that Christians, believers, ought to honor the state as well as honor the Lord, each one in its place and in its proper order. We are to give to God everything that is due God, and we are to give to the state everything that is due to the state. There is no conflict between obeying God and obeying the the governmental authorities, the state. Think about what that means. Think about what that means to you and me. It means we're not given leave as Christians to be poor citizens. Sometimes we might think that, but we're not. We're not given leave as Christians to disobey our government. There are exceptions. We've talked about this many times. There are exceptions to that, but it is a general rule. One of the exceptions is when obeying government would cause us to disobey a direct command of God. Obviously, we know we don't do that, right? We know we ought to obey God rather than men. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 5, we saw that exact thing happen. The, the apostles were, were told to disobey God. And they said, no, we ought to obey God rather than men. And they went on doing what they were doing. That's one of those times. That's one of those exceptions. And that's what Jesus taught here. He said, give to God what is God's and to the state what is due to the state. Paul expanded on this and and taught a lot more about it in Romans chapter 13. And we won't go there today, but you can look at it if you want. If you look in the book on digging into Romans, you'll see we we talked about that a lot when we went through Romans, uh, Romans chapter 13. One of the commentators I I studied in, in preparing this, he had some remarks that I thought were helpful. So let me just read what he said. He said the overall point here in Mark is that Christians are called to a profound obedience to their government. Christians are to be markedly law-abiding, even down to the traffic laws and the speed limits. Nobody in here speeds, do you? Anybody in here speed? Anybody in here got a speeding ticket in the last year? Not me. I don't speed. I do not speed. Which one of us got a ticket in the last year? Don't mess with the guy in the pulpit. Anyway, where was I? We are to be law-abiding, even down to the traffic laws and the speed limits. Believers must never cheat on their taxes. Anybody here ever do that? 
We may feel like it's, and I'm still reading from this other guy's words, we may feel like it's the infernal revenue service or perhaps the eternal revenue service, but we must pay every penny we owe. There also ought to be respect. This is, I think this is the one that gets us all right here. This is the one that gets me. There also ought to be respect. The conduct of many officials defies our respect. But even then, we must always respect their position. Also, if we are to give to Caesar what is his, we must participate in the process. It is our God-given duty to take our share of responsibility in civic, state, and national politics. Not to do so is sin. And last, in other words, that means we're supposed to vote. When voting time comes, we're supposed to vote. And last, we are to pray for those who rule over us. As Paul said to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Our Lord says we must give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So, so the, the Pharisees and the Herodians had gotten together, and they'd come up with a question they thought unanswerable, and Jesus just plainly answered it. He answered it without any trouble whatsoever. And rather than being discredited by the answer... And that was their motive in asking it. He amazed his hearers with an unassailable response. I wonder, are some today driven by that motivation? A motivation to discredit Jesus Christ? Have you ever heard anybody trying to discredit Christ? Is that a motivation today? You may have heard the name Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel's been much in the news and in, in uh, social media and things lately. Lee Strobel wrote a best-selling book some years ago called The Case for Christ. He's written many books since. Lee Strobel's whole point in that book uh, was, was to describe his desperate desire to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel accounts because his wife had gotten saved and he wanted desperately to not have to give up his sinful lifestyle. And so he set out to do that. Of course, you know the story. It's been made into a movie since, but you know the story. You saw that he eventually ended up bowing before the Savior and getting saved and writing this wonderful book, The Case for Christ. Of course, the Apostle Paul... His, uh, Saul of Tarsus at the time is an even greater example. When he set out to try to destroy everything he could about Christianity, to discredit Jesus Christ in every way he could, until he came face to face with the one he was trying to destroy on the road to Damascus. And we heard him saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? So if you're one who thinks, you can ignore the truth about Jesus Christ. If you're one who listens to the preaching of the Word or, or reads the Bible or Christian books or contemplates Christian thought, uh, just simply because you're trying to look for a loophole, or you're trying to look for mistakes, or you're trying to figure out how you can discredit it, if your hope is to find some way to avoid accepting him as your Savior and Lord, if that's your motivation, you need to look, you need to look at the astonished faces of these Pharisees and these Herodians, because it isn't going to work. There is no mistake to be found. There is nothing to discredit. There is no inconsistency to point out. Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was did exactly what he said he would do, and he's, his demands on your life are absolute. There's no avoiding it. You need to quit trying to find loopholes, and you need to just bow before him before it's too late. And by the way, I don't think that's just the thing that, that happens to uh, non-Christians. I think there's a lot of Christian people who sometimes are so motivated. We like the idea of accepting what Jesus did for us on the cross. We like that get-out-of-hell free card. But what about when he says we're supposed to live holy lives? What about when he says we're supposed to live separated lives? What about when he says we're supposed to be disciples and follow him? What about all that stuff? A lot of times we try to just kind of explain that away. I think there's a similar motivation there. 
Well, we'll get off that one. The Pharisees and the Herodians sought only to discredit. The Sadducees sought only to ridicule him. Ridicule him. One man said it's generally believed that the Sadducees were the Jewish aristocratic party whose members came largely from the priesthood and the upper classes. Though less numerous and popular than the Pharisees, they occupied influential positions on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and generally cooperated with the Roman authorities. They denied the truths of the resurrection, future judgment, and the existence of angels and spirits. They accepted only the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. As authoritative, they rejected the oral traditions observed as binding by the Pharisees. This right here is the only time you read about the Pharisees. In the Gospel of Mark, the only time he mentioned it. These were the intelligentsia. These were the aristocracy. These were the highly educated and influential members of that society. They were above believing in the supernatural. Things they couldn't explain. Angels or resurrection. That's why the old joke came about. That's why they were sad, you see. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. These intelligentsia tried to outsmart Jesus with what they thought was an impossible question. And there are those around us everywhere today, people who think they can come up with unanswerable questions. If God can do anything, can he make a rock so big he cannot pick it up? You ever hear that one? Denny? Where did Cain get his wife? You ever hear that one? I mean, people come up with all kinds of questions, but they think are such smart and lofty and intelligent questions that they can somehow trip up the Lord Jesus Christ, or discredit, or in this case, ridicule. A couple years ago, Ken Ham, a couple years ago, Ken Ham uh, debated Bill Nye. Anybody remember that? Ken Ham debated Bill Nye, uh, Ken Ham taking the position of biblical creation and Bill Nye taking the position of, of Darwinian fictional evolution, Darwin's work of fiction. And if you remember that particular uh, debate, we showed it here, as a matter of fact, uh, we, we played it here. Throughout the entire thing, Bill Nye never, there was not a minute, that he did not have a stupid smirk on his face. You remember that? That's why I picture these, these Sadducees right here. They were so high and lofty, and, and Jesus was this little bumpkin here, that they were going to just dethrone him so quickly with their brilliant question and uh, smirking the whole times. The question they asked in verses 19 through 23 is interesting. It dealt with a concept called leveret marriage. It was based on the instructions that Moses had given in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. You can read that on your own. One person said, if a husband died without leaving a male heir, his unmarried brother, or if none, his nearest male relative, was to marry his widow. The first son of that union was given the name of the dead brother and was considered his child. This was to prevent extinction of a family line and thereby keep the family inheritance intact. In Israel. So they came up with this ridiculous scenario based upon that particular thing in which seven men married the same woman, all dying without any one of them providing the needed heir. All had been her husband on earth, they said. So who would be her husband in heaven, they asked. It's an absurd question. It really is. And I can just picture them smirking as they ask it. Boy, we've got you now, Jesus. Answer that one. Hmm. And I love Jesus' answer. He started off by saying, you guys are wrong. You're in error. You are wrong. And I love the fact that Jesus was not the slightest bit intimidated by this class, this ruling class. He was not at least bit hesitant to point out they're wrong. 
thinking in verse number 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? And his explanation of why they were wrong is the same explanation that applies to all the times that we're wrong. Almost every time we have a, a problem theologically or maybe in every area of life, I don't know, but certainly theologically, it would be because of those two things. We either are deficient in our understanding of God's word or we're deficient in our understanding of God's power, of who he is, his character. What do you struggle to believe? Are there things, are there questions that you wonder about? Sometimes some people will say, you know, there, there must be life on other planets. Pastor, how could there not be life on other planets? I mean, look at the universe. Look at all of this out there. How could that possibly be all for us? How can we be the only ones? It's so arrogant and, and, and ridiculous to believe that. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Some of you in this room no doubt believe that. But you know what? The Bible answers the question. You're mistaken about that if you believe that because you don't know the Scriptures. The Bible says plainly in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. There's no life on other planets. Because Eve is the mother of all living. And if we know our Bibles, we know that. The psalmist David wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. The Bible is clear that the, the vastness of the universe is not about us. It's about God. And it's about showing us his glory. It's a witness to who he is. It's a demonstration of what he can do. It reminds us of his immense power and his immense ability. He could do that. And he could do it with a word. He could do it with a thought. And so we err when we struggle to believe something, almost always because we're in the grips of one or both of those errors. We're either deficient in our understanding of the word, we need to read our Bibles, or we're deficient in our understanding of God. He's all-powerful. How can we ever ask the question, how could God? How can we ever ask that question? God can. No matter what the issue is, God can. Well, Jesus answered their question. He actually answered both parts of their question regarding whose wife she would be. He said she would be married to none of them in heaven. Verse number 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Anybody concerned by that answer? Some people are concerned by that answer. Are you happily married here and you think that sounds like it might be a diminishment there? Anybody want to admit to that? a lot of people who think that way. And, of course, it's nonsense. Everything in heaven is infinitely better. And that includes our love for one another and our relationships with one another. One person said we will be more recognizable and more lovable in heaven than we ever were before. When someone asks you, will you know me in heaven, answer, I have known you well here, and I will not be a bigger fool in heaven than I am here now. I will know you, and you will know me. Amen? To be sure, there will be no marriage in heaven and no concern about past husbands and wives. One, another, another person said, but that does not suggest in the slightest a reduction in love. We will be ourselves at our ultimate best, and we will be more lovable and more capable of loving than ever before. From time to time, someone asks me whether some particular aspect of life here on earth, something they particularly love, will be in heaven. Sister Susan, who I think went home sick today, she might uh, ask if there's going to be coffee in heaven. Somebody who shall remain, remain nameless probably wouldn't think it was heaven unless it was snow in there all the time. Will there be snow in heaven? My beautiful wife loves the outdoors and trees and flowers and clouds and sky. And from time to time she says, will those be there? Animal lovers. 
want to know whether there will be animals in heaven. I know there's horses there. Revelation talks about horses. To all these and more, the answer is simply this. Nothing about heaven is less. We need to get that in our minds. Nothing about heaven will be less. Everything about heaven will be infinitely more. All of the good that we know and love here will be there to an expanded, infinitely expanded degree. All that will be missing is that which is broken, that which is bad, that which is evil. None of that will be there, thank God. Paul visited heaven. Most likely, I think, when he was stoned to death at Lystra. You can read about that in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. He was stoned to death at Lystra, and he was shortly thereafter restored to life. And uh, he talked about that. He said he saw things, he heard things in heaven that it was just simply impossible to describe. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. So heaven is glorious. Heaven is wonderful. It is all good. There is none bad. There is nothing diminished. And there is everything perfected. So I don't know about you, but I like Jesus' answer to their first question. I, I think it's good. Good stuff. He answered the second part of their question, or at least the implied second part of their question. They didn't come right out and say, uh, Jesus, do the dead rise? But, of course, he knew that was their real question. That's what they really didn't believe. That's what they were basing everything else on. And so he answered that. The Sadducees based their disbelief in the resurrection on the fact they couldn't find it in the Torah, the first five books. That's the only part they accepted. And so there's nothing about the resurrection in there, they said. And so, therefore, we don't believe in it. So what did Jesus do? He answered their question from the Torah. He went straight to the second book of Moses and and talked about it and answered their question. His argument could be explained like this. God implied that the patriarchs were still alive and that he had a continuing relationship with them as their covenant-keeping God, even though they had died long before. Another took it a little bit further and explained it like this. Jesus' logic is obvious. As Origen in the second century pointed out, it is this. It is ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men who have no existence. Therefore, because God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must be living. And thus the resurrection is a reality. Or put another way, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are nothing more than dust, God cannot now at this moment be their God. God is not the God of that which has ceased to be. Take that, fair Sadducees, right out of the second book of the five you claim to believe. And so the intelligentsia have posed their brilliant question, hoping to heap ridicule upon the Savior, only to find out they weren't quite as brilliant as they thought they were. One person said, it's not wise to cross swords with Jesus intellectually. Now, I like one other thing about this, this question, and that's verse number 27. After Jesus has answered their question, he gives them this statement. He says, you are therefore greatly mistaken, verse number 27. And I just find that's kind of amusing. It's only recorded in Mark. The others don't say that. But Jesus did not hesitate to point out to them not only that they were making a mistake, but it was a big one, that they were completely off their rockers. And if you look at some of the other translations, it, it, it makes it a little bit more humorous. The New Living says, you have made a serious error. The NIV says, you are badly mistaken. The ESV says, you are quite wrong. I like that one. Quite wrong. Young's literal says, ye then go greatly astray. And it encourages me. It encourages me to realize that we don't have to fear going up against those who think they have the upper hand, who think they have a stronger argument. We are Christ-like when we say, there is only one way to heaven. 
That's not a wrong thing to say. That's a right thing to say. And we're speaking like the Lord Jesus Christ when we say it. Right now, I don't know if this has been resolved or not, but just this past week I read an article that said that Kent State University was debating whether or not the phrase, you need Jesus, is classified as hate speech. Now, I don't know if that's been resolved or not, but I'll tell you something. It's not hate speech. It's love speech. It's Jesus speech. He would have no trouble saying it, and neither should we. It's truth. We ought to proclaim it. Well, there's one final question and one final motive we should examine. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their motive was to discredit. I mean, the Pharisees and the Herodians, their motive was to discredit. The uh, Sadducees, their motive was to uh, ridicule. Finally, we have the scribe, the lawyer. And I think his motive was to understand. To understand. That wasn't the case at first. At first, initially, he also was with the rest of this crowd. He was trying to discredit. He was trying to ridicule. You don't see that in Mark. But if you go to Matthew, you read in Matthew chapter 22, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together again. And then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So Matthew makes it clear that his initial motivation was just as bad as theirs. started out like the others. He wanted to discredit. He wanted to ridicule. But somewhere along the line, his motivation changed into a genuine desire to understand. We see that in verse 34. Jesus saw his motivation was different. Something had changed. What do you suppose that was? What would make one of these guys change their thinking? What would make one of them change their motivation to actually saying, wait a minute now, I want to understand this. Well, I think, and it's just my theory, Mark doesn't tell us, but this is my theory, I think he heard the Savior's answers to the previous questions. I think he heard it, and uh, it changed his heart. And no matter how wrong our motives in asking questions about Christianity, if we'll just listen to the teaching of Scripture, our heart will be changed. Scripture can break down every argument. Scripture can answer every question. All our preconceived ideas. Jeremiah said, Is not my word like a fire? says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Hebrews said the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I think he listened. I think he heard. And I think it got to him. Just like it gets to anybody who hears the word of God. They can continue to reject it, but it gets in there. There were two thieves who were crucified with Jesus. You may remember that. Both of them started out railing against him. And then somewhere along the line, one of them changed his mind. Somewhere along the line, one of them decided he wanted to talk to Jesus about his soul. What, what happened? What changed? Again, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think it could only have been. He was watching Jesus on the cross. He was listening to Jesus on the cross, and his words there affected him. This scribe came like the others to discredit and ridicule, but hearing and seeing Jesus, he began to understand. He, he began to believe. And Jesus told him in verse 34, he was not far from salvation. Notice, though, Jesus didn't say he was in. He said, you're close, but you're not in. Rich young ruler came to Jesus in a similar state as this lawyer. He believed to an extent, but Jesus said, you're close. But there's one thing you lack, Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22. Paul witnessed to Phoenix, the go- Felix the governor, and he was moved by Paul's testimony, convicted by his words. He believed it to an extent, but wouldn't quite commit to believing fully. 
Acts chapter 24, after some days when Felix came with his wife Priscilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Close, but not in. Later, Paul witnessed to King Agrippa, who admitted to him that he was close, but not quite in the kingdom. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Paul asked. I know that you do believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, you almost, almost persuade me to become a Christian, Acts chapter 26. Almost, but not quite. Not far from the kingdom, but not in it. All of these men needed the same thing. This scribe needed it. Uh, The rich young ruler needed it. Felix needed it. Agrippa needed it. Many need it today. They needed to receive as well as believe. John chapter 1, verse number 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God those who believe in his name. I think many today seek to understand. And maybe they do understand. And maybe they do believe to a certain extent. But they don't take that final step and say, I receive you as my Savior, my Lord. And so they may be not far from the kingdom, but they're not in it. And if they were to die that way, they'd go straight to hell, whether they understand or not. Three questions. Three questioners, three motivations. I wonder if you see yourself in any of those. Why do you seek? Whether you, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, have wanted to discredit his teachings so you can avoid them, or like the Sadducees, have thought yourself superior to all of this and above it, needing none of it, or like the lawyer, who maybe you have a genuine desire to understand. But you just haven't taken that final step. You can throw all those wrong motivations aside today. Turn to Christ. Believe in him today. Receive him today. Don't just be close to the kingdom. Be in it.